All aboard! The Mumbrella Travel Marketing Summit has been announced. Join us on the 27th of October at the Four Seasons Hotel, Sydney. This year, we'll gather market leaders and speakers to discuss methods to connect with your audience, latest trends and the impact the last two years had on the travel and tourism industry. Want to regrow and reconnect with the travel and tourism industry? Yeah? Book now at www.mumbrella.com travel and save $150. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine and today, integration potentially on the horizon once again for Cleminger BBDO, while moves at Dentsu may spell the same for the Japanese holding group. Then we revisit the TV networks facing off for sporting rights once again, as Cricket Australia and Network 7 lock horns over the remainder of their deal. Finally, I'll be chatting to Vitasoy's Nick Bartram and Leo Burnett's Kate Silver about the brand's new platform, pushing ahead with sustainability at its core and the real-world workings of Publicis's Power of One. Joining me in the action today is Acting Managing Editor Andrew Banks. Hey, Banksy. Hey, Cal. Can we move to Melbourne? You can indeed. And Acting Deputy Editor Emma Shepherd. How are you doing, Emma? You've been washed away yet? No, not yet, but I am finally back um, after recovering from the good old COVID. So it's good to be back in full force. And it's, Welcome um, back to full health. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're I think, looking um, much better now. Looking, looking out my window here, it's truly, <laughs> truly finally vindicating Mumbrella's decision to have a Melbourne-based reporter. It's, it's lovely down here. Um, Banksy, I hear you're bringing a little bit of Gordon Ramsay energy to the podcast today, uh, judging by your recent watching habits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, getting right into uh, a lot of uh, the Ramsay at the moment, and uh, I think the discussion today will will be fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> well, just remember to talk to us with respect, and I think that'll be uh, that'll be all good. Absolutely. Anyway, let's move on to our first topic. So uh, a bit of a split one here. Big news dropped yet on Tuesday morning that CEO of Dentsu Media, Sue Scalacci, is departing the group in the next two weeks with the decision reportedly made by Sue herself around eight weeks ago. This comes after nine months on the creative side of the business stealing the headlines for its local restructure and most recently its global integration creating Dentsu Creative. Then additionally on Monday, just unfortunately after our newsletter, Cleminger switched things up, taking its Melbourne, well, co-Melbourne ECD, Jim Curtis, and shifting him into the chief creative officer role across both Melbourne and Sydney offices, signalling a bit of a coming together of the creative product there. Uh, Shall we start with Dentsu then? Yes, big news for the industry. And I'll start off with just asking Cal, was this a surprise move for Sue or was it more kind of potentially in the works and on the cards? Is a bit of a, well, in a way it's surprising and in a way it's not. There's, there's been rumblings for a little while that something was maybe going on uh, on the media side of their business. As we know, they've, it's very clear about what's happening on the creative side of the business. Um, Sue was appointed into that group role um, I think about a year ago next week. So um, interesting timing on that one. But, I mean, overall, it's been an interesting kind of uh, week on this topic more generally. You know, we had um, Sir Martin Sorrell on the podcast here last week talking about um, the big play on creative integration, uh, Dentsu's making, uh, kind of looking at putting the toothpaste back in the tube and then, Again, um, yesterday, well, uh, yesterday for us recording on a Wednesday, creative CEO uh, was speaking on a paid piece on MI3 about Dentsu doing that exactly and putting the toothpaste back in the tube creatively and media-wise. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes, I guess, in the coming months in terms of what they end up doing with the media side of the business because, you know, you kind of thought – Things were finally a little bit clear there with the appointments over the last nine months and with Sue kind of um, also, uh, as confirmed a few weeks or months ago to Mumbrella, they were searching for that CARA-specific CEO role as well. Yeah, lots of movements happening at the moment. Do you know if there's going to be a replacement for Sue at this stage? Yeah, so I I put the question to Dentsu yesterday 
Um, and the the initial idea was that um, yes, there will be a replacement for that Dentsu media role. Um, what that does for the the other role that I mentioned there, the Kara role, um, currently unsure about that one. I suspect that the um the search has been put on hold for now because I think it, it was Sue that was leading that search herself as she's been um juggling both of those roles for I guess the last the last year or so. And then of course as well, Dentsu still have their group CEO, um Angela Tangus that who recently was announced to be moving over to take on that um UK and Ireland role. So also on the hunt for that. So um, interesting to see what happens with all those three roles there, whether or not they will all be filled going forward. But um, my kind of initial hunch would be that I don't think we'll get three individuals coming in to fill those ones there. So, Cal, what, what happens next to Dentsu locally? Uh, any word? Yeah, well, this is, this is the question. I think certainly things on the creative side are settled now. Um, and, you know, I think it took a bit of time for that. Dentsu very much locally were setting that up for the last nine months, I guess, so that they could reach that sort of crescendo point with that presentation from global CEO um, Wendy Clark and global chief creative officer Fred Levron in, in Cannes, which I was there for. Um, it, it appears as though they're pretty clear that maybe creative will be taking the focus for Dentsu going forward. Um, it seems like they're kind of shifting to what is sort of a creative services and marketing operation with media and CXM sort of feeding into that. And that's what um, Kirsty again wrote about yesterday in that, that piece. It, it will be interesting to see how much they go down that avenue because, um, I, you know, I was talking to a few people in the preparation for this podcast and, um, Dentsu really kind of placed focus last month on how they're returning quite heavily to their Japanese heritage. Um, now, I don't want to read too much into this, but, um, you know, if you look at Dentsu, which is a Japanese operation, you look at their Japanese operation, Dentsu Media doesn't exist there. If you go, their, their services there are simply packaged as Dentsu. It's one offering. Um, so, you know, if we look at it that way and kind of maybe read into it, well, we're st I'm still waiting on a few responses on that on that front. Maybe that's what they look to do, and they kind of look to, you know, go one step further with that creative integration which they announced last month. Um, you know, and whether or not they bring, uh, I guess, the media services into one sort of, I guess, service line. Um, there was an interesting line at the end of the Dentsu press release which I picked up on. Um, said so Dentsu is already in progress with the search for a new leader of its media business. In the interim, I, the iProspect business will continue to be managed by Ollie Rapson. Now, interesting to include that line when Ollie Rapson, who is the CEO of iProspect, um, you know, didn't have any part to play in this release. So um, I guess one to watch there. And uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Moving on to Clems, and won't spend too much time on this one, but Cal, while this is coming together of the two agencies at Clemenger, this isn't the first time they have come together, is it? No, it's not. Well, you know, it's very much, um, they are very much two separate agencies. You know, they've got two separate CEOs. You've got Jim Gold in Melbourne and you've got Brent Kirby uh, recently appointed at the start of this year in Sydney. Um Previously, Nick Garrett, who was CEO of um, Clems Melbourne, was uh, had the C the Sydney role brought into his remit in I think 2017, um, which was as I remember the first time he was then sort of reporting directly into then CEO Robert Morgan, who's still chairman at Clemenger Group. Um, by all accounts, this was you know a bit of a struggle and juggling both, and that that role only lasted about a year before Nick would eventually um, depart the group. And Cal, you spoke to Clems Melbourne CEO Jim Gall this morning too, I, I believe, uh, to get a bit more info on what's going on. What did he have to say? Um, I just wanted to speak to Jim this morning because um, the other Jim in this situation, Jim Curtis, was uh, part of his creative team here in Melbourne. And um, in Melbourne they had three ECDs alongside Ryan Fitzgerald and. Um, and Richard Williams, 
kind of leading the creative product here. Now, last week, um, Ryan Fitzgerald, who was brought over to Melbourne, uh, Cleminger alongside Curtis left for special. Um, so now we have this single figure returning to maybe a past model for Clems leading their creative output. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to understand, first of all, what the reason for this was, and second of all, the extent of, uh, I guess, the integration across these two agencies. Now, it appears that, uh, well, according to Jim, this is to give greater creative depth across the Clemenger uh, BBDO agencies across Australia and also sort of give a leg up to this this Sydney team, which has kind of traditionally been um, a lot smaller, maybe more of the challenger brand between the two. It also, um, Jim said, pr- provides unity with one creative leader. Um, previously, there being five across the two agencies. I mentioned three there in Melbourne. There was also two in Sydney um, with another one of those, Brendan Wil- Willenberg, also leaving recently to Archibald Williams. So it was sort of a a kind of juncture point where they could, I guess, cement that leadership structure. So we we all know the kind of history with Clemenger Melbourne over the last couple of years. They were awarded Mumbrella Agency of the Decade on the creative side of things for the 2010s. But um, I, I guess Jim said this is a, a new era for the business creatively and they're seeing uh, green shoots of a creative recovery also being a big reset after many I, I guess, um, departures and arrivals over the last two years. Jim said now they've got a world-class team in place. Um, industry sources have sort of long touted integ- integration of the two agencies with the historically more successful one in Melbourne. Um, although Jim said now this that's, you know, for the, for the time being, of course, he didn't want to kind of foreshadow any further integration, but that's about it for now. He said it were he did affirm that it was a moment to sort of um reinstate Clemenger's uh position as a global creative leader. So lots to come and lots to look out for there as well. Jim said there's a few live pitches going on and some uh exciting work coming out in H two. Shall we move on to the next section, which will we will be discussing Seven and Cricket Australia to meet in federal court and reports of a three billion bid for the AFL. It's been a busy week in the sports broadcasting world. News first emerged last Thursday that Seven's taking Cricket Australia to court over multiple breaches of its contract, while it still has two years of the $450 million contract to run. These breaches were, according to Seven, largely relating to the standard of the Big Bash League in terms of talent scheduling and the overall product. Uh, following on from that on Saturday, the Oz also published details of a $3 billion deal that Paramount and Network 10 is hoping will help them secure the entire AFL rights package to be split across its 10 and Paramount Plus services taking the challenge to current rights holders 7 and Foxtel. Uh, the 7 and Foxtel pairing currently holds the rights till the end of the 2024 season with the deal valuing the annual rights for these next two years. Um, at around $473 million per year. Uh, so that's, you know, quite significantly less to the proposed or rumoured 10 deal, which values it at about $600 million a year. Um, the Oz went pretty hard over the weekend on its sports rights reporting, kind of, um, I guess, setting the agenda towards the start of the week. Tricky to wade through it all, but how much of this can we really buy into? Yes, it is a tricky, tricky topic um, and a lot of content to go through. But it's a really interesting time at the moment because, you know, you're seeing a number of codes, sporting codes coming up. Um, and it's a situation of, you know, every broadcast needs a sporting code. Um, it's almost like a game of musical chairs where a sporting code is a chair and there's just not enough to go around. At this stage, it's all speculation, but my hunch is that nine will keep tennis, seven will keep the AFL. And 10 may have a chance to pick up the cricket after what's been going on with 7 and Cricket Australia at the minute. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. It's Nothing is really set in stone um, as of yet. So we're really just going to have to wait wait and see what happens um, and get some some kind of concrete evidence of, of what's going to happen with these agreements and these codes. Banksy, the Oz kind of outlined three routes that 7 might take um, or offer to Cricket Australia as a as a sort of solution to this. Can, can you outline those for us? And are we really, I guess, expecting this to see 
it settled in court? Yes, Cal. I, I think both parties are really keen to settle and, and work a solution out. I think Seven's come up with these three options that they've put forward. Option one's what's called a blend and extend deal that would see the network drop the legal case in court and then fulfil the remaining two years of the current deal and then sign on for a further three or four seasons of test cricket at a reduced rate and then offering a baseline figure for the BBL. So that gives them one option. The second option is to offer some sort of all-encompassing deal for both tests and the BBL in order to pay, I think, $75 million in cash and $7 million in free advertising each year. And the third option is just to sort of both decide that it's come to an end and both parties just walk away and they would just drop the push for damages at that stage. I think at this point now the court case is probably likely to start early next year if it does go ahead. So I think that they would be keen to kind of solve this problem as quickly as possible. Yeah, the the cricket one's a curious one because, you know, Cricket Australia, um, it obviously, it sells the rights to Test Match Cricket, Big Bash League, and then also the International One Days and the International 2020s. Um, I guess you could compare it to, you know, the product then of soccer, which is split across, as we've discussed, many different platforms. And um, as, as Ben Willey was um, chatting to Mumbrella about the end of last week, the, the difficulty is, you know, as a broadcaster, you want to grow the game. You want to get as many eyeballs on the screen as possible. And what Seven has struggled to do over the last year is have the best product on free-to-air TV when largely the, the biggest local names and the biggest international names are playing up behind a paywall in those international um, fixtures. Uh, and, the, the, you know, this is why the footy, um, when they show two or three games a week, it's always a Friday night, it's always a Saturday night game because those are largely scheduled to be the biggest games of the round. Um, and, we, you know, we've also seen this with the A-League's coverage this year. They've only had one game um, around on free-to-air TV with the rest behind that paywall. Um and with the kind of, I guess, inconsistency year to year of the standard in the A, the A leagues, it's a lot of pressure to have that one weekly game as the sort of standard setter or the box office game to draw in new fans. And then on the other hand, um, arguably for cricket, when nine is sorry, when seven has spent this much money on its, um, you know, six years of of broadcasting test match cricket, which is the part of the deal which they're you know pretty happy with. Um, in 2023, arguably the biggest event in the cricket sporting calendar will be the Ashes, um, which will be an away league leg, and that's actually being broadcast on nine. So that will be, uh, you know, a miss out for them on the same hand there. So Banksy, do you think um, Seven's sort of got a, a leg to stand on in this case? Can they can they actually, I guess, gain something from this? I'm no lawyer, Cal. Um, I think they've got a good strong. We're case. aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think they've got a good, strong case. I think they unfairly probably liken the BBL to the Indian Premier League. They expect that kind of standard. Um, that There is a very big disparity between the two leagues. I think Cricket Australia has struggled with COVID. Um, I'm not sure whether they can claim to be, quote, astonished by Seven's move. Um, I think they have a lot of things to answer for, particularly the scheduling. I mean, they were up against... The BBL itself was up against a lot of other men's international games. Um, the the really interesting thing, though, is to do with the quality of the game and the players and two things that came out of it. I was reading a, an ABC article. One was where a Sydney Sixers played their assistant coach, Jay Lenton, um, instead of Steve Smith, even though Steve Smith was available, but Cricket Australia wouldn't release him. And my favourite one... Um, as a report in as reported in the ABC that I guess it could get a, give today's mumbo story a run uh, for its money about the Colombian creative uh, Justin Avendano appeared for the Melbourne Stars against the Perth Scorchers and then a week later played for the Sydney Sixers against the Scorchers again so again Double agent. Quality, exactly <laughs> I, I think that to me is it, it's certainly an issue with quality 
Then they go into areas of, about the salary cap. That's quite disparate between the IPL and the BBL and um, and other things that they've brought up. So I really do feel that that seven ha- are really in a, a strong position here, Cal. Yeah, and I guess you know when you're putting down four hundred and fifty million dollars, you really expect both of those sides of the deal to come up trumps. Cricket is still a massively important sport in Australia, but you know for 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 seven. Um, the kind of the promise is consistent ratings with the Big Bash League across um, across the summer, and you know while there are a lot of test ma- test match cricket fans, it's really quite a difficult one to introduce you know young people and families who are not previously um, interested in the code because you know five days is a lot of time to spend watching cricket, or maybe two and a half days if we're playing against England. Um, but anyway, moving on to the AFL. Um, Paramount and 10, huge offer M. Can they afford it? Yeah, look, we're talking $3 billion, which the Australian reported, which I just think is nuts. You know, does 10 really have the revenue to do this? Um, you know, they did spend $100 million on the Melbourne Cup rights for a five-year deal back in 2018. They spent $200 million on the A-League. You know, perhaps Paramount Global can bail them out, but you know, for what price? $3 billion seems like a little bit steep uh, for the AFL rights. Or is it simply easier for Paramount to just ditch 10 now they've launched here um, and that's really all they were using the network for? Um, you know, That was in the with, Australian, was it not? Which was also, you know, in the, uh, the, the Australian reported as well. So that's all hearsay, but, you know, we just have to wait and see. And we should add that 10 did um, close down those, those rumours quite quickly, did they not, Em? We um we also had uh you know the network you know slam those those rumors down that Paramount Global was going to you know rid of the network so um yeah yeah they're saying that they that, that I guess a result could be seen within the next month or so and um, AFL chief executive Gil McLaughlin is um I guess keen from all accounts to broker that deal himself before. The successor is announced. Interestingly, Fox tells Patrick Delaney um, also appearing to be a sort of late front runner for the replacement in that role. So one to watch for there as well. Just on seven, you know, seven situation with Cricket Australia, um, and you know, did that kind of could that potentially hurt the chances of of keeping the AFL? Um, I do know that. I, you know, I do know that only because this time around they have a clause in their agreement that gives Seven the opportunity to buy back the rights, kind of like the first bid rights that happened with the Olympics. Um, now, the same can't be said with the tennis rights. You're looking at what Seven is doing with Cricket Australia at the moment. Nine has the cricket rights, uh, sorry, the tennis rights, and has proven to be kind of a rock-solid network for, for Tennis Australia. Why would you know, you want to potentially risk it and go with Seven, who could just back out at any given time. Uh, you know, Seven can't afford to lose the AFL. Um, but when they did a few years back, um, you know, take it off Seven, the tennis rights, um, they didn't actually have a clause in their agreement at the time. So it was easier back then for Nine to take those rights, those tennis rights off Seven. Um, however, this time around, not so easy um, when it comes to the AFL I know you've mentioned, on a personal note, you've both mentioned that there are just simply too many players in this space, um, Banksy and M. It's obviously very lucrative, but you know, where does the fans sit within all of this? It has been tricky. Um, I just imagine you know, how frustrating it is for a sports fan to figure out where to watch their favourite sports events these days. Um, hopefully there will be kind of a solution where each sport will be integrated into one app so it's kind of just a go-to-one-spot th- go type thing you know, sifting through the other platforms. Almost feels like we need a Foxtel again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have to go full circle, I think, as far as I'm concerned. I've been looking at a lot of the forums about people talking about the rights and I know at the moment a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on behind the scenes with all the different players here. I think there's already a, a situation where people have had enough uh, with with having their particular favourite sport splintered, fractured, parts of it sent one streaming service, parts of it going here. Uh, people are getting really frustrated, at, like you said, Em, about being able to find things 
and they really are in the dark, uh, I guess, about what is available and where where things will be in the future. And it really puts people off. Like, uh, you know, there's people who are used to looking at things on free-to-air. Now there's that fear that it, it's now going behind paywalls um, and they're going to they're gonna have to have three or four different streaming services to watch to watch different things. I think that can be really complicated and it really puts people off, um, I think. So to, from my point of view, you know, I, I do sympathise with, with people, um, with the consumers and how they're going to be able to access and digest um, what previously was quite simple, um, maybe a one subscription or a lot of it was on free-to-air due to the anti-siphoning laws, which seem to, again, I mean, they're up for review. So, you know, we, we could even see more sports disappear from free-to-air or, you know, we could see a resurgence if, if the new government uh, decides that they're going to put more protections in. Yeah, uh, maybe it's time we produce the Mumbrella Sports um, Broadcast Directory for 2022. Um, yes. Up next, we've got Vitasaur's Nick Bartram and Leah Burnett's Kate Silver. Today on the podcast, we welcome Nick Bartram, Vitasoy's Director of Marketing and Strategy, and Leo Burnett's Melbourne General Manager, Kate Silver. Welcome to you both. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Callum. Great to be here. So I guess starting off, um, before we, we crack into things uh, specifically relating to the relationship, Kate, you've been in the role for about nine months now. How, how has that been going so far, and how's the, I guess, the transition between managing some of those partnerships like Vitasoy, HBF and other ones going? Yeah, it's been great, um, Callum. It's just been um, an excellent sort of 12 months. Um, obviously come out of COVID um, and, you know, within the agency in itself, like it's great to be leading um, the Melbourne team. It's sort of such a awesome time of um momentum for us as a as a as a national um agency so um the team just got back from Khan um only last week obviously off the back of a pretty awesome um swag of of wins with Suncorp and the Grand Prix um and look you know we're we're in a we're in a really good position at the moment with um growth We've seen um, some excellent wins, um, both Melbourne and Sydney, um, of late, um, and really just just so wrapped to be here to talk about um, Vitasoy, which is a brand that we picked up um, in uh, December of 2020. So this was right in lockdown. Um, it was a, a pitch that we'll obviously talk about, um, but a pitch that we won um with with Nick and the team um joining sort of the roster of publicist group agencies um with Starcom looking after the media so it's been awesome and I'm loving it <laughs> and um Nick as Kate mentioned there it was about 18 months ago uh the start of the relationship between your respective companies um there was a pretty quick turnaround there with the first campaign which we'll get on to in a little bit but a good starting place might be to ask what, what was the sort of um, the rationale and the reason to take the business to a pitch and what were you what were you kind of looking for with that as well? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so for context, I'd been with Vitasoy, I think roughly about uh, four years in a variety of um, strategy roles and also marketing roles. And I think when I moved into my current role, uh, again, was at the start of 2020. So as Kate said, sort of uh, once COVID was just really hitting its peak. Um, and typically when we go through the process, it's an annual brand review, brand plan, um, every brand, every business would do it. And I think we challenged ourselves at that point in time to really assess how we're going against other competitors in market. And there was a, I remember a slide in a presentation which actually dictated um, scene by scene how we're fronting up from a creative standpoint, us versus our key competitor and really identifying that they were very much um, identical. So, and I think a lot of that can come about from the fact that we're still an emerging category. I think uh, plant-based nutrition globally is very much an emerging space, probably the biggest macro trend uh, in a global sense anyway. Um, but because of that acceleration and that emergence, all of the brands are currently playing in this functional space. And we identified that if we really wanted to elevate ourselves over and above that functional space, the natural movement is into a more uh, emotive space, which is 
um, basically the, the, the main conduit between us putting it out to pitch and trying to see how do we get some fresh thinking coming through. Um, so that was the main bit that we wanted to take out um, in the pitch process itself because how do we evolve from these uh, a marketplace that largely had a bunch of interchangeable brands to something that would be distinctive and, and have a true tone of voice, but then also play off our, our key product attributes was ultimately the ambition that set the wheels in motion for the pitch process. And then Kate, on the other side, what was the sort of approach in, in I guess, competing for that and then ultimately winning the business? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think from the get-go, we, we saw huge sort of ambition from from Nick and the team I think a pretty realistic assessment of where they were as a brand as well. And so what we often look for is, you know, is there like all the, the the hallmarks of kind of what a great partnership would be founded on. And what we saw with with Nick and the team was, yeah, like absolutely ambition to, to be more, um, to do things differently. Um, and what, what, what really excited us was, I guess, just the scope of, um, of plant-based and, um, from our own research, we, we saw that, you know, not only was there sort of growing consumer, um, I guess, um, expectations around brands. So, um, you know, in the vacuum of, I guess, government, lack of government action around sustainability, we're seeing people really look to brands to, to do more and to, to, to sort of enable ways in which they can um, do their bit for the planet. So we saw that there was a consumer side, but there was also really um, a lack of leadership in that plant-based category. So you sort of put two and two together and we thought that that's a, a really neat kind of brief to, to look at. And um, I guess, you know, our approach in, in how we sort of um, look at things is, is through the humankind lens. And that, and that really at the heart is about... Um, not necessarily seeing things through a business problem, but really trying to understand what the, the human problem was that we would ultimately answer for for, for people and then um, create a solution that would not only sort of power the marketing, but also could power the, the business side of things. So we instantly saw a lot of scope um, with the guys and, and that, I guess, you know, um, funneled a lot of our energy to, to to challenge Nick and the team around what they could do and, and see the potential in what the brand could could ultimately become. It must be um, good being, in, I guess, in a great market for those uh, those non-dairy milks. I mean, I can't remember the last time I heard someone order a full-fat uh, latte or flat white down here in Melbourne. It's certainly not <laughs> not my order. Um, the, the the first work that you then produced, which was a, it was a pretty tight turnaround, as I mentioned, was um, in line with World Earth Day, and that was the Planet Milk campaign. Um, yep. W- w- was that sort of just an evolution of that brief, Nick, or was that something that you'd kind of pinpointed that you wanted to have something out to sort of, I guess, stamp the start of that new sort of positioning? Yeah, it was. Um, we really wanted to uh, leverage what would be more of a, uh, a universal trend that we could link into as a bit of a launch platform. But if we think back to essentially developing Let's Grow a Better World, the main ambition for us was, and everybody would probably be familiar with that Simon Sinek piece, The Why, and that was the conversation that we'll constantly having with Kate and the team and it's kind of like how do we get to a point where we can have a a modern version of it that our articulation to make sure that we're building on our product attributes we're establishing a distinctive tone of voice and then having that end point which would ultimately allow us to piggyback uh, World Earth Day and I think that's where the guys started to see the end point but then almost having the deliverables um, built into that to get to there that was what allowed us to really build what was a total ecosystem in terms of what the total message would be Um, naturally whenever we go to market with with a new piece of comms we want to um, drive a PR component to that and a key part of that PR component is obviously having something that will get traction out there into the main news streams so that we can try and drive a little bit more organic reach in that space but I think the thing that had us most passionate about um, creating Let's Grow a Better World and the end point of Let's Grow a Better World was that this is 
at its most basic fundamental level a business platform. We're not actually talking about a brand platform. And a lot of the conversations we were having with Kate early on in the process was certainly this isn't an opportunity to just create a new brand plan or a new brand platform. We wanted to elevate it so that it would be proud enough to you know, paint it on the walls of our factory or, or our head office to make sure that Let's Grow a Better World as a total business platform was something that we would demonstrate um, not only in presentations or in above the line, but also in terms of how we behaved um, all throughout the total business, which was the exciting bit for us. And it all, it all very much came to life through, um, so Cara Harrington, who's an absolute guru in our team, she was driving this notion of a manifesto. Um, and that was a bit of a changing thinking. So again, talking back to our why, the ability for us to craft a, a complete manifesto that actually provided us a North Star and again, this bouncing point of what our launch platform should look like was really crucial in terms of building that ecosystem so that when we go, right, uh, World Earth Day is when we want to go live, making sure that that's represented in that total brand manifesto was just such an, yeah, a, an obvious launching point for us. So, Yeah, I think when we um, pitched this this platform of, of let's grow a better world like obviously there was a sequencing of of how we saw this coming to life the most obvious starting point is to really declare that and um and that was I guess very purposeful in how we launched on on world earth day but this was always going to be the starting point for the brand and not the end point so um we started there but we had a very clear um view around I guess you know it's one thing to sort of say that that you stand for something you know you see the the benefit in um, creating a better world and and giving people ways in which they can do better for the planet but it was another thing to also put some brand behavior behind that and so um, what was you know a big part of of, of our recommendation to to Vitaslu was that you needed yes you needed to you know find a place. A role in people's lives and 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 deliver real value around that but you also as a brand and organization would need to do something yourselves um, yeah. of which you know I guess that's where the more exciting you know and more really interesting part and, and I shouldn't say more exciting but but I guess the really meaty part of um, I guess what we've been working on with kind of I guess the, the agency village and with with Vitasoy around okay um, we're serious about this. This is time to kind of put our money where our mouth is, which is, um, you know, sort of, I guess, driven a lot of the behaviour that we've um, we've embarked upon this year, particularly in, in June, which, Nick, you know, you can talk to, to that partnership. But I think that, um, you know, when we talk about business versus brand platform, you know, this is, for us, this is like, what a modern brand um, should be aspiring to do because, frankly, it's one thing to say something, it's another thing to actually do something and give people um, ways in which they can, you know, want to buy your brand and, and want to choose your brand and want to rebuy and, and, and talk to your friends about it. And that's, um, I guess, why we were so excited to partner with Vitasoy because the ambitions were there and the conditions were there and, you know, and here we are talking about it 18 months later, which is awesome. Yeah, and, you know, there are so many of these studies which we've seen which have said that consumers really want to see their, well, they will actively prefer brands who pursue sustainability and kind of, um, I guess, position themselves towards that rather than just sort of feigning interest in it, which we, uh, we've we again spoken about on this this podcast. Um, Nick, Nick, can you talk us through, you know, how this relationship has extended beyond just your traditional marketing channels? Um I know there's a few sort of avenues that you've explored there. If you could speak about that a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, I think before, uh, what what informed our position on it is you think about when you sit in those workshops and trying to create new brands and ideate off a brand story. Um, the beautiful thing about Vitasoy is it's actually got quite a rich brand story. And for those unaware, essentially the, the founder, Dr. K.S. Lowe, he, uh, the brand itself originated out of Hong Kong. Um, now he was a he, he was a food scientist. He wanted to actually take his position of knowledge on on alternative proteins and deliver a more nutritious soy milk 
to the masses throughout 1940s or there or thereabouts. So you think that's coinciding with World War II and a lot of poverty and an and absence of nutrition throughout the area. So it essentially has developed this brand from a philanthropic place. And so when it's uh, when it's embedded in your DNA, it's about how do we actually find that truism behind the brand and bring that back to life? Because we found that uh, that as a brand story had a lot of richness to it. Um, but in a similar space, uh, again, the business, the brand's been around since 1940. So for us, uh, you mentioned earlier around going to your local cafes and, and you know, rarely getting sort of a regular uh, a regular full fat latte. For us, this very much um, hasn't been a fad. It's very much been a long journey in terms of uh, we see ourselves as 80 years young in terms of trying to drive um, a lot of interest in the business, in the brand and in the category itself. So um, we're always focusing on it's not our role to necessarily be the cool, funky brand, but what we do want to be focusing on is stuff that matters most to us which I, I share as context as to why we've established a partnership with the Maloon Institute. So thinking about the last 12 months, we've spent a lot of time establishing Let's Grow a Better World. Essentially now we're moving into a period which is demonstrating Let's Grow, let's grow a Better World. And, and how that comes to life now is, for those unaware, the Maloon Institute is essentially a business, oh, sorry, a non-government organisation, an NGO that's actually one of five NGOs globally recognised by the United Nations and, and uh, that actually focus specifically on regenerative ag agriculture. So we've signed a five-year commitment with them and ultimately that five-year commitment will see us rehydrating Australian landscape catchments to make sure that they're more drought resistant, more fire resistant, more flood resistant and ultimately deliver against their ambition of regenerating millions and millions of hectares of Australian landscape uh, so that they can protect themselves against the climatic extremes. And you've just got to look at a year-on-year -year basis. Uh, that impact to the Australian environment is ever-present. So we're really excited about that. Um, it's, it's ultimately one of our key proof points around not just talking about growing a better world, but demonstrating it and making sure that these catchments on an annualised basis move from being dry, arid landscapes to lush, rich, uh, fertile landscapes that don't not only deliver against an increase in, in water flow or whatnot, but the biodiversity as well increases across that period. And, and we're really genuinely excited um, because it's a, it's a change in our way of thinking and making sure that we can start to drive not only the awareness of the connection, but the awareness of the Maloon Institute is pretty much what our primary focus is right here, right now, which Kate alluded to earlier, we're driving an above the line uh, comms piece, which is celebrating that connection and making sure that everybody is aware of the Maloon Institute because they're a terrific organisation and we really want to be driving their uh, notoriety of what they do and how fantastic they are at delivering against this regenerative agriculture projects, um, as opposed to us necessarily just driving a branded message. So as we move from essentially the, yeah. the, the establishment of Let's Grow a Better World, it's now about creating those proof points. Mm. You you kind of mentioned that it's not your, your job to be cool, but I think you'll find that a lot of uh, Australian consumers find all that stuff um very cool for a brand to be engaging with. So um, I, I think consumer sentiment is moving that I, way. I agree. I, yeah. I, like just to pick up on that point, like, you know, I sort of said before, we, we, we try and sort of solve the people problem. And I think the people problem really when it came to like particularly with sustainability and, and wanting to do more, like there is no shortage of, you know, everyone wants to do more. Like we all do. But I think that the sort of sentiment of eco-anxiety and, and actually not knowing where to start was, was what we really honed in on. And I think that informed like trying to sort of actually turn the table on that and actually show that little, little actions and little things that you can do like, you know, switching your milk and um, having almond milk in your smoothie and stuff. Like they're small little things that actually you can do, I can do, my mum can do. You know, I think it was just about sort of turning the narrative to be less about guilt and um, doom and gloom and actually like positivity. And I think that the Maloon Institute is a great way for people to actually feel like their small little choice at the supermarket can make a difference. And that's, I guess, 
how we've sort of orchestrated this this whole platform to be about small behaviors sort of getting to be um big big impact you know and and um i think that the that you're absolutely right Callum like these are really fascinating um and amazing organizations and it's just awesome that we can have you know a a huge mainstream um brand like Vitasoy supporting them and getting giving them the stage to be recognized for the work that they do because people will listen and 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 I think that um you know, we, we we feel like this is a this is a great blueprint for, for other brands to do the same and to do more, right? And Nick, we, we kind of speak about um, the consumer sentiment and these small changes like Kay mentioned there. How have you seen, I guess, this new platform and the, the output since the changing of that relationship sort of moved the dial commercially? And what sort of effect has it had for you so far? Yeah, we've been really pleased, um, to be frank. Uh, So we launched this platform, as we mentioned earlier, around World Earth Day, so April 2021. So a little over 12 months uh, since we launched. And across that period, we've actually grown at uh, 18% in the main grocers, and that's versus category growth of about 11%. So we're really Mm -hmm. pleased that we're growing faster than the market. But what is driving that behaviour is ultimately an increase in house so we've been able to get into, uh, I think the numbers most recently were around about 320,000 uh, households incremental across the last 12 months, which uh, for us to drive household penetration by three uh, percentage points is a really, really healthy indicator that people are getting in behind what the brand's saying, um, but also we're having the right propositions and we're also having the right products for consumers to uh, enter brand soy and we're essentially giving them no reason to exit because we're trying to demonstrate the right behaviours as a business and as a brand. And um, that's uh, probably most um most evident when we have a look at our brand imagery. So what we have seen, and our last 12 months was probably the most aggressive above the line investment that we've put behind uh, brand Vitasoy over the last few years. So it's good to see that that's actually translating to performance, but the key bit was around those who buy regularly as a term and also those who buy most often have actually doubled in their incident rate uh, in terms of people seeing the comms and then saying, yes, that's a brand for me. So they're twice as likely to uh, get behind brand Vitasoy and and buy it more passionately, i.e. more regularly and most often. So we're seeing it really translate into a demonstration of of belief in the brand and and that's translating to the overall grocery success that that I mentioned earlier. So we're we're really pleased yeah it's great to hear about kind of um the work actually translating into success for you so i guess um just finally before we wrap things up um you mentioned earlier obviously you've got that kind of um the full suite of uh publicist offering uh in your portfolio nick uh we hear a lot about the the power of one kind of positioning and offering that publicist has i'd be interested um to just get a few quick thoughts from both of you nick I guess um, your your thoughts on how that has gone since moving to that full model, and Kate, on the other hand, how it's uh, I guess different from working with another group or maybe an India agency. Yeah, I think the best uh, the best demonstration of that is when we do brief out a piece of work, and we're being quite aggressive with a number of bits of work that we're looking to get in, whether it's Let's Grow a Better World or some other platforms that we're now establishing, and. We're about to go live with a completely new platform, as an example, which will be our first foray uh, outside of milk into plant-based yogurt. I think the clear demonstration is as we brief these in, what we get back is a really consolidated viewpoint that includes not only uh, the creative view, but then also how does that then play out into the social space, into the media space, and then finally, uh, we're actually using... um, another arm of publicists for uh, PR as well. So we get that full holistic view on something that will not only um, have continuity of thought, but then also there's no preciousness when it comes to um, budgets. So if we need to sort of pull a little bit from here to support there, there's good conversation in that space as well to try and make sure that 
the, the business objectives are ultimately handled as a holistic point of view rather than there being a bit of a piecemeal approach where we have to get different people in at different certain, certain times. Um, so we've seen that it be, to be a really, really genuine benefit um, so that we know that when we're going to market, we've essentially got continuity of thought and a really strong uh, piece of rigour amongst um, the, the agency village as well. And I think the only other benefit to that is um, having that singular point of communication and I think that's been really useful because quite often we need to get agencies together to solve for an issue and then just having that clear piece of communication where I only deal with one person to get everybody together for a big group convo um, can be really, really t uh, a lot of time-saving benefits as we, as we go down that pathway. So I'm a big advocate for it. Um, it's made my life easier. It's made the team's life easier, which I think uh, is ultimately the key benefit. But just, yeah, again, I, I can't understate the uh, the continuity of thought piece. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Like I think, you know, I couldn't have sort of said it better. I mean, that genuinely, that that is the, the thinking behind, you know, the connected platform of kind of when you bring together um I guess the the agency village being under the publicist group network, like we talk about the, the multiplier effect, which is essentially, you know, how you um, you increase the the impact of kind of creativity um, of you know of commercial success. And I think that we've always um, felt like intuitively that's what we get um, when we work together with with Herd MSL with Starcom. Um, together you know we we are we don't have a lot of the um the sort of we certainly don't have the PL, you know um we have the single PL, but 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 certainly i think we put the the problem at the heart and 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 really the objective at the heart of the response and so we're kind of all focused on the same thing now that is not to say that that you know, isn't the way that we can work with with other agencies and other holding groups. It's not not at all that, but it's just that um, I think the the benefits of it are everything from big to small to you know, big being um, the the single point of contact, the the continuity of the response and the thinking, right down to God, it's easy. You know, <laughs> when Nick's coming in and we're all in the same place, like it, it, it's 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 um, it's a multitude of things, and it's obviously something that that we've seen and we've experienced as um, as a mode and a, a model of um, of working that that works for us and works for our clients, and that ultimately is um, what we care about: is is this getting to the right solution for our clients and for the consumer? And and I think there's evidence to say that you know, in the case of Vitasoy, absolutely, it's um, it's excellent. Well, nice to hear a, um, a first-hand account of it in uh, in action. Um, Nick and Kate, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Cal. Speak soon. Take care. And that is it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and check out mumbrella.com.au for more content and updates. Banksy, Emma, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks to Nick and Kate too. See you next week. Bye.